Now, the past couple of times that I've had the opportunity to share, I've tried to have some kind of a prop since we're in the middle of a series called Heroes from Hebrews. But I realized they've all been male characters. And I started to struggle with that a little bit and realize I live with five females and lest I be considered discriminating in any way against the much greater gender here today, I wanted to make sure I could represent at least another character of the female persuasion named, anyone? Wonder Woman, right. Now the the irony or the humor of these glasses are that one of my sons was with his grandparents several months ago shopping and they allowed him to pick something out and he picked these out. It wasn't until he got home that he was told by one of his sisters that it was Wonder Woman and uh, not whatever he thought he was getting. So I thought, oh, it would be fun to use those. So the question is, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about today as it relates to our hero today of Moses? And the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, any good communicator knows you're not supposed to use something and then not tie it in, right? But I am today, and I'll tell you why. Originally, I was scheduled to teach on Rahab, and we had to move the schedule around, and I had these glasses, and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to tie this in in some way, and then we had to switch it around, and I thought, but I still want to use these glasses, and so I want to use them today. And then I was thinking, if you remember two weeks ago, we were talking about the faith of Moses' parents. Jeremy was teaching on that. Moses was referred to as a beautiful child. And I thought, you know what? Close enough. It's going to work. <laughs> All joking aside, we are in a series called Heroes from Hebrews. And the reality is, the author of Hebrews, as he is writing to these first century Christians, this was no joking or laughing matter. In fact, he was encouraging them in a strong way to make sure that their faith was bolstered. Uh, He could sense and understand that there was some some stress going on right now. There were some struggles. Similar to many of us in our walk with Jesus, where we go through highs and lows and times that we need to be encouraged, or in other aspects of our world as well, where maybe it's a coach or a teacher that's coming alongside of a student or an athlete saying, don't give up. Keep going. You need endurance. This is a marathon, not a sprint. In fact, Pastor Tim, a few weeks ago, as he was talking on some of the characters, talked, it's not how you start the race, but it's how you finish the race, right? It's how you finish the race. Yes, the start matters and the middle matters, but it's a matter of finishing the race. And the author of Hebrews, though we don't know exactly who it was, has that same kind of pep talk, if you would say, in Hebrews, although of a much more eternal significance. These first century Christians were struggling. They were dealing with persecutions of various kinds. They were being thrown in prison. They were having their stuff taken from them. Uh, They were probably being abused and physically harmed at some level. And it was tough. And they were struggling. And he's writing to them in the book of Hebrews multiple things. But one of the biggest themes, as we've looked at, is this idea of faith. Is that he wanted to increase their faith in God. He wanted to encourage them to say, don't give up. Don't give up, don't give up, endure, be strong, it will be worth it. And we come to this series with that being the context of endure. And many of us here today, as we've gone through this series, need to hear that myself included, endure, don't give up, it's worth fighting for, don't stop. And so today we come to our next hero in our series, Moses. Mentioned two weeks ago, we looked at the faith of Moses' parents, and today we're going to focus on the faith of Moses. Now, if you're like me and, and probably many people in our world today, we get much of what we know about the character Moses or the man Moses, a real person, from two places, and neither of them are the Bible. 
You know what they are? They're on the screen. One is Charlton Heston in the movie Ten Commandments, right? The second one, for those of you who are a little bit younger, the Prince of Egypt. I'm not joking. Seriously, even as we were talking a few weeks ago in one of our sermon prep meetings about this topic, the pastors were going around, was that in the movie? Was that in Ten Commandments? Did Pharaoh's daughter say that? You know, we were just having some fun with that because we are often drawing in what we know from other sources. And while there's some truth in those movies, the reality is the story of Moses and what Scripture presents to us and what the author of Hebrews wants to highlight today is far greater than any Hollywood story. But we don't have a lot of details. Like with many of the stories and many of the heroes that the author of Hebrews is using to to kind of model to these first century Christians who were struggling, say, hey, look back. They would have known who these characters were, who these men and women were. They would have been very familiar. They were their ancestors. And he's saying, hey, don't forget what these men and women went through. Hold fast to them in those moments of wanting to give up and not finish the race. Remember their faith and be encouraged. And similar to the first century Christians, we're in the same place today as some of us need to hold back and remember and hold to those who have gone before us. This great cloud of witnesses that the author will mention in chapter 12 as he looks to Jesus. And ultimately, he's pointing to Jesus. All of these men and women, these heroes of the faith, they're foreshadowing a much greater hero that's to come. And we'll finish the series and later in August, early September, as we look to Jesus, who is the ultimate hero, the ultimate example that we are to follow and the only one who is capable of saving us from our sins. And so when we think about the story of Moses, though, we need to think more than just what we've seen in the movies, because certainly those first century Christians that were dealing with hardships, many of them that we can't even begin to imagine, as difficult as our lives are, and it is legitimate hurt, many of these things far surpass what we are going through. As he pointed back to Moses and he looks at his story, this would have meant something to them. He proceeds talking about Moses, as we saw with Jeremy speaking on this two weeks ago, with looking at the faith of Moses' parents. And I really love it. really get just a very little bit of information in that, outside of the fact that Moses was beautiful and they recognized that God wanted him, them to do something extraordinary and protect him because God, they believed, had something for him and were willing to go against the king's edict in the midst of protecting him. Now we come to the middle of Hebrews chapter 11, and the author pivots to Moses himself. He's not just a little baby. He's grown up now, and we see some pretty incredible things that the author wants us to see today. So if you're turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read a few verses in Hebrews chapter 11, and then I'm going to jump to Exodus chapter 2 and read a few more verses, and then I'm going to jump to Exodus chapter 12. You'll see these on the screen. And the numbers in your pew Bible if you'd like a quick reference to get there. So we're going to start with what the author of Hebrews has to say. And then look at the author of Exodus. Anybody know who wrote Exodus? Moses. Ironic, right? We'll read from his words what he has to say about himself. I find that to be kind of ironic in this, in this process. We'll even pay attention to what he shares led by the Holy Spirit as well during this time. So Hebrews chapter 11, we'll start in verse 24 through 28. The author writes, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." 
By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now flip over to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11 through 15. Gives us a little more context of, of where Moses is at at this point. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, before going to the last chunk in Hebrews, I don't know if you noticed between what the author of Hebrews and what Moses says, they, they have kind of contradicting statements about how Moses responded after he was found out. The author of Hebrews says he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. Did you see that? But if you look at what Moses said, this is Moses talking. He says, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. We're going to come back to that a little bit later, but I wanted to highlight that so you don't forget that, that seemingly there's a contradiction and we'll see if we can figure out why the Lord allows that to happen. Finally, turn to Exodus chapter 12. The author of Hebrews mentions the Passover, and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of the details of the Passover. We don't have the time for that, but I want to read just a couple of verses in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, and this is the Lord talking to Moses. He's given him some instructions for the Passover, the Passover being the, the culmination of the plagues that had happened on Egypt. This was the last one, the final one, the one that would involve the release of the Israelites from the Egyptians. And this is what the Lord says to Moses. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." Let me pray. God, as we open your word today, as we read your scriptures, we try to figure out how to apply the life of Moses to our lives today. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. Lord, that you would convict hearts, that you would help us to be not just hearers, but doers of your word today. Help us to have fresh eyes today, a familiar story that we've seen movies on, we've talked about, we've probably, as, as children here, have heard the story many times of Moses. But God, help us to see what you want us to see this morning and to walk away changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The big idea here this morning that I want you to catch if you hear nothing else is that Moses had, an, had, Moses, Moses had a faith in an invisible God that produced a very visible faith. And this morning I want to look at four faith decisions that Moses made and how those can help us understand what visible faith in an invisible God Looks like. Does that make sense? So we're talking about a visible faith, but an invisible God. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 11 when he says he endured looking as to the one who was invisible. So how does that work? How can we have faith that's visible even when we have a God who's invisible in the process? And our outline is very simple. Actually, if you look in your notes, I took it right from the author of Hebrews, right? Why re recreate the wheel? 
He wrote it many years ago. I thought his outline worked great. So what I did is I took four words that he uses as he talks about these four faith decisions of Moses, and they form our outline today, just to try to keep it real simple. And those four words involve something he refused, something he chose, something he left, and something that he kept, okay? So we're going to work through those very briefly, not give a lot of time to any one of them, but to see why the author of Hebrews thought it was important for him to pick out those four faith decisions and highlight them today. So first we see that we are to refuse worldly approval, refuse the world's approval. If we go back to the story of Moses, it says right there in the beginning of the passage that we, that we read that by faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know if you realize, but that was a pretty big deal. Back in that day, he was adopted out of slavery into opulence and wealth. Every kind of comfort and privilege that he could possibly want, Moses was plucked out of one and put into the other because the faith of his parents. The king had declared that all, Pharaoh had declared that all kids, all boys under the age of two were to be killed. Uh, they defied that appropriately so, made a basket, floated him down the river, and he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter and eventually adopted into that family. Now, ironically, she couldn't, she couldn't nurse the baby, so she had to find someone to nurse the baby. And God's providence and his sovereignty, what does he do? Just so happens that Moses' sister is standing by. She jumps in and says, you know, I happen to know somebody that might be able to help you today takes it back to their home, and his own mother is able to nurse him. Now, we don't know how long that process took. Theologians think anywhere, historians, from five to 12 years. So we're not talking about for three months she nursed him. Okay, now he's six, seven months, I can pass him on. He was in that home for a period of time, and during that time, likely, he was hearing about this Yahweh God. He was understanding his heritage. He was being indoctrinated, appropriately so, with his Jewish roots, but then at some point somewhere in those early years, he was passed on from that family and adopted into Pharaoh's home. All the privileges that come with that. So for him to walk away and refuse that at the age of 40 was a huge deal. You know, one of my children, and I know several of you uh, here today have adopted children, well, one of our third daughters adopted, and when we adopted her into our home, Right? She got everything that came with being a culver, all the wealth that came with being a culver, which was exactly nothing, right? She got, she got nothing, okay, from a physical standpoint. However, she got the love of two parents that cared for her, siblings, an extended family, lots of other immaterial things that came with that, right? Big deal, and we're thankful for that. And yet Moses, he got that and everything else. So for us to appreciate what he was walking away from is to understand that he had it all. He was, up, he was like in the top five, right, of Egypt at that point. All right, he was a big deal, and his future was set. He had nothing to worry about. So for him to come to a decision at the age of 40 that he was going to refuse that, turn his back, and walk away was a huge, huge deal. Something that God had been, been doing in his heart probably all the way from when he was a, a three, four, five, six, seven-year-old boy in his parents' home, his rightful parents' home, birth parents' home. Something that God had been doing that came to fruition around the time of 40 because it says that at some point, and Stephen mentions this in Acts chapter 7 when he's sharing this story, that it came into his heart to kind of go figure out who his brothers were, who his people were. The Holy Spirit was working in him, and he began to go, and so we find he goes out looking, and at this point, he knows that his, his brothers and sisters are oppressed and in slavery, but he happens to see an Egyptian slave master abusing an Israelite, you know, slave, and in a moment of righteous justice, he strikes him down and buries his body and tries to do away with the evidence. 
Comes back the next day and two people are fighting and they say, well, who are you to tell us what to do, right? You can do the same thing to us as you did to that slave, uh, that slave leader? And he, and he realizes, oh no, I'm in trouble and I've got to leave. And we'll come back to that. Did he leave because he was in faith or in fear in just a moment? But, but he is willing to refuse the worldly approval. And it, and it manifests itself in two ways we see in the scripture. One is, it says that he chose that path as opposed to the fleeting pleasures of sin, chose that path as opposed to all the riches of Egypt, and he was willing to identify with his people. I don't know about you, but I find at times sin to be very pleasurable. I might be the only one here, but I don't think I am. We would not sin if it didn't bring us pleasure, right? You can think of the times that I've allowed my eyes to see things that I know I should not be looking at. And there's a momentary pleasure in that. Yes, that brings some shame and guilt and desire for repentance to follow. I can think of the times that I yell at my kids and lose control and just kind of blah, right? And in the moment, that feels really good, right? I got that off my chest. There's, a, there's something about that that feels really good. Or telling some little juicy bit of gossip about somebody. Boy, in the moment, it feels like I'm an inner circle. I have something to share and it identifies me with this person. We're in this together. There's pleasure. And I could go on and on and on and on. There is pleasure in sin and for us to sit here and to think there isn't. And oh man, how could you do? No, no, there are fleeting pleasures of sin, but they're fleeting. And they leave those of us that have, have found a relationship in Jesus and understand what he has done with us, they leave us far off than we were. Momentary fleeting pleasure. And every one of us here in this room has experienced that in some level, probably in multiple ways, even this week. But Moses understood that to refuse the world's approval meant he needed to walk away from the fleeting pleasures of sin. And there were plenty of them for him. He could have any woman he wanted, any money he wanted, any pleasure he wanted, any food, never have to work. He had it all, but it came at a cost. He knew that God was calling him to something else. He also knew that God was calling him to identify with his people. So for him to stay in this adopted family would have been against God's heart for him because God was calling and putting in his heart to go and to be with the people that he was rightfully to be with. I was thinking about this weekend, I'm like, you know, that's like every parent's worst nightmare, right, as an adopted parent, is for their child to reject them or parents in general to be rejected. And yet in this case, it was the right thing because he was going back to the family he had been taken away from and ultimately God was calling him to come and be the deliverer of these people, but he didn't know that yet. See, Moses' life is split into three equal 40-year parts. I don't know if you knew that. The first 40 years, he's adopted into Pharaoh's family, and for the most of those 40 years, he's living in Egypt with all the pleasures of the world. Then he leaves, and for 40 years, we'll see in a moment, he's in the wilderness. 40 years in the middle of nowhere, and you have to believe going, God, what am I doing here? And then 40 years, when 80 years old is when God calls him to come back. And for 40 years, he has the privilege of leading a group of people that really doesn't want to be led, right? An obstinate, rebellious, difficult group of people. I mean, doesn't that sound like a dream life, right? First 40 years sounded good, but boy, the last 80, not exactly how I want my retirement to go. But that's what God had called him to. And he refused the world's approval. And the reality is all of us are seeking approval somewhere and from someone. 
Some of you are seeking it from your spouse, your boss, your children, other relationships, things around you, circumstances, the world in some way you just want to fit in, you want to be like them. And so you're willing to compromise on what God has called. You're willing to enter into elements of sin and to make sinful decisions in the short term because, boy, to say no to that and to to lose their approval or to make a stand on a conviction that you know to be true just feels too costly. And so the fleeting pleasure of sin takes over. Right? It's the temptation, the temptation is strong to do that. And yet God, God's approval is what matters. And Moses got that and he was willing to refuse the approval of culture and the world in that time without knowing, like many of our other heroes, willing to take a step of faith, a leap of faith, not knowing where it was going to last. And imagine, I mentioned he was 40 years in the wilderness. How many times in those 40 years do you believe Moses had to have thought, what have I done? Seriously, right now. I could be being waited on hand and foot, having everything I want. I'm in the middle of nowhere, having no idea what's going to happen. God, why? On a very small level, I can appreciate this because a couple of years ago, God laid on my heart and, with, and my wife together that he wanted us to step out in faith and do something that seemed very ridiculous, radical, and crazy at the, at the time. I was employed, I had a great job, well compensated, insurance, dental insurance, health insurance, a 401k, all the things that went with that, and God was calling us to step out in faith, leave that, because he had something else for us, but he didn't want to tell me what it was. That's where I was like, oh, that, no, that doesn't sound good, right? And I wrestled with that for months. We wrestled and prayed and just felt like God was calling us to do that, and I don't have the time to get into the details. But we made the decision, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to step out in faith. Big deal. And there were a lot of things that went into that, a lot of prayer and a lot of counsel. And I went in, and I was going, or I was going to go in, it was a Tuesday morning, to go in and share with my boss that I was about to quit. And tell him also, I didn't know what I was going to do either, but, you know, just felt like God was calling us to do this. And the night before, my wife and family were in Michigan. I think I've shared this with some of you. She calls me, and she goes, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Now, that wasn't part of the plan, okay? We were trusting God, and we were trusting God with some pieces, but boy, getting pregnant was not part of that plan. And so my first question to her was, that's great. Who's the father, you know? You know, who is it? Because it can't be me, because, you know, it was me, okay? But we were just in that moment going, wait a minute, God, is this what you have for us? Like, this doesn't make any sense now. Should we be... And we felt like, no, he's calling us, you know, move forward, move forward, move forward, and we did. That led a few months later to Sarah losing that baby, in the second trimester, difficult situation, hemorrhage, ended up in the ER, and we're going like, seriously, it just, honestly, I felt like a cruel joke. It was painful. It was difficult. Wrestled with that. Still wrestle with that humanly. Doesn't make any sense. God, why this? Why that? Why are you doing this? Believing that he had something else for us. Moses is in a similar place of stepping out in faith like that without answers to these questions. God calling him to something that leads to him having to flee and his willingness to refuse the approval of the world. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Because I don't know if you're like me, even in that decision, I'd love to say that two years later, God's brought it all that he hasn't. I still wrestle, and I'll come back to this later. I still have moments of peace and panic in the process. Went to the dentist the other day. Five of my kids had cavities. Like, oh my word, right? That's where you go, Lord, what are you doing? But do I trust him? Do I want his approval more than the world's approval? In theory, I do, but daily, daily, I have to ask God to give me the endurance and the strength to follow him just as Moses did and the author of Hebrews is encouraging those first century believers. But you see, Moses, secondly, he was able to refuse the world's approval because he had chosen a far greater treasure, a far better treasure. 
You know, we're all treasure seekers, every one of us. Every one of us is seeking treasure. The question is, what kind of treasure are you seeking? Some of you, your treasure is all here. It's in this world. You're killing yourself. You're working hard to make as much money as you can because that's your treasure. If I can just get a little bit more, then I'll be happy. If I can just get a little more stuff. If I could just get that, that house, that, none of those things being wrong, that car. And again, none of those things are wrong unless they become where you find your deepest satisfaction and your desire. If stuff becomes it. For Moses, he was willing to leave behind stuff because he was choosing a far greater treasure. It says there again in the scripture that he was willing to say no and refuse the approval of the world, refuse being called Pharaoh's daughter because he had chosen and believed that the reproach of Christ was far greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. He was willing to identify with his people, to be in community with God's people and He was willing to say no to the short-term pleasures for the long-term gain. You know, the author of Hebrews is all about helping us to know that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels, talks about early in the chapter. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a better sacrifice than the lambs were. Jesus is better than the angels in all ways. Jesus is better. He's the best and greater sacrifice and treasure, and the same is true for us as we think through in that treasure. Are we willing to trade the short term for the long term? Am I willing to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin now, as satisfying as they may feel temporarily, to better say, no, I believe that I have something that's far greater that's coming for me, and I'm willing, I'm willing to wait. That's a decision that Moses made here. Moses was willing to choose the better treasure, and that meant saying goodbye to the short-term pleasures and treasures that were afforded to him. How much more for those of us who know Jesus, who believe that what God offers to us is a far greater treasure, right? Far surpassing, that it will deeply satisfy us both now and to come in both a temporal and an eternal perspective when we choose his treasure, we choose him because ultimately the greatest treasure is Jesus. And it's, it's remarkable to me that Moses is talking about this more than a thousand years before the Messiah was going to come. And yet God had put in his heart and through what he, had, what he knew at that point and the stories that had been passed down, that he understood that there was a Messiah coming, an anointed one. Because I'd like to say that, well, it's because he read Genesis, right? He read through the book of Genesis and understood what had happened at the garden. And okay, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. So God had laid in his heart through time over over hundreds of years his still belief, a strong enough belief that he would walk away from all the pleasures of that world and refuse the approval of Egypt and all the ridicule and mistreatment that would come with that. He was willing to put his faith in a Messiah that had not yet come. And as I was thinking on this week, I I thought, how much more for us here today that have the opportunity to have God's heart, that have the very words of God, his scripture, his, his heart for us today, and to know how the story ends and to say, we choose the far greater treasure. But for him to choose that treasure meant a short term life of suffering. Because the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ meant suffering. To identify with Jesus, the the Messiah to come, was to mean to say, you know what, I'm giving up a life of comfort. 
Some of you have had to do that in your own lives here as well. You've said, you know what, I choose the greater treasure, but that has meant that I have to choose a lifetime, maybe here on earth, of some level of suffering. It might be relational suffering, might be physical suffering. You may have had to say no to something. You may have gone somewhere, done something, obeyed God in a way that cost you greatly because like the heroes in Hebrews and those first century Christians, they were looking to something that was far greater. What treasure are you seeking? What's most valuable to you in your life? And is your faith visible in a way that would show others around you that you put your treasure there? I was talking to someone who works with a mission organization a few years ago and was reminded of this idea of choosing the greater treasure even when it can be very costly. Someone had signed on to their mission organization and their dad, his dad, uh, was very wealthy and owned a large chain of of quasi-fast food restaurants all across the country. And you'd know it if I said it, but it's not important to our detail today. And his dad had said, if you choose to go and, and enter into that world, he wanted to go work with Muslims and share about Jesus in places that were hard to reach. He said, if you choose to do that, you're dead to me. You lose it all. I'm going to hand you the keys to the kingdom. You get it all. You run the whole operation. But if you choose to leave, not only will you lose that, you're dead to me. And that man, because he believed that God had called him to that, again, would have been wrong for him to do that and to work within that and share the gospel in that way, but God had called him to something differently. He refused his father's approval and he chose the far greater treasure and today he's continuing to share the gospel with Muslims. Now that's kind of an extreme example, but let's look at our own lives. How often do we choose the short-term treasure the temporary fleeting treasure over the long-term eternal treasure in Jesus Christ. Where we're, we're running that race, which is a marathon, not a sprint, and we're choosing to hold on. I gotta hold on tight to this stuff because I might lose it. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna give you everything. I'm gonna give you myself, just trust me. I've wrestled with that too. Many, many times in my circumstances, going, okay, God, intellectually I trust you, but you know what? That, I'm not feeling it so much in my heart right now. Like, that was a big bill, or how's this going to work out, or that's disappointing that, that that didn't come through, or where are you now? Or those moments of, what have I done? You know, in that passage we read in Moses, it says he, he fled, and then what it says, then he sat down by a well. That's kind of what I would have done after, after fleeing as well. I've gone through the well. I'm just going to sit down here and go, now what? And you have to believe there were moments going through his mind, even with understanding who God is and what God had called him to, that he's going, what have I done? Did I choose the right one? Have I made the right choice? I'm here to tell you, if you've chosen Jesus, you have made the right choice. You've chosen the, the treasure and the reward that cannot corrupt. And yes, there will be difficult days. We're told in Scripture that all those who desire a godly life will be persecuted. Not just first century Christians, but 21st century Christians as well. And if you haven't noticed, the persecutions are rising. And if you choose to say, I refuse the world's approval and I choose a greater treasure, you will be persecuted. And you will have to make a choice of whether to stand and identify with God's heart and God's teaching or to identify with the world. It's come, it's come. Not just another world, it's coming here as well. It also involves, my third point today, is that you need to leave behind the old life. This goes similar with number number one and two points. You need to leave behind the old life. Moses was willing to walk away. We've already referenced that. God calls him. He sees something. He sees the, the suffering of his 
his, his people, the men and women around him, the slaves, and he's got to do something about it. He steps in with some righteous you know, justice and does something about it, but that causes him to have to flee, and he's willing to leave behind. And the key word that we see there is endurance, with endurance, right? It's a key word that we've talked about over and over and over in this series so far, is endurance. And it says here in chapter 11, verse 27, it says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. A remarkable faith, right? Moses didn't know how the story was going to end. He didn't know what God had for, had for him. But because he had faith in a God who was working in him and through him, he was willing to leave, to take on the reproach of Christ, to identify with Christ rather than the Egyptians, and to make a decision that would have made no sense at that time, no sense at all, ridiculed, misunderstood, and to take the road Less traveled. And some of you, you have that same point today. You need to leave behind the life behind. You need to leave that behind, but, you, but you're struggling. And I think there's probably two groups here today, if, if I'm thinking even my own life. There are some who have never left the old life behind because you have yet to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. To do just what we saw with Andrew this morning. To exchange your life for his and to say, you know what, I'm going to identify with you. You offer a far greater future and opportunity to be reconciled through the blood of Jesus in a right relationship with the Holy God. And you, for the very first time today, God's working on your heart, you need to make that decision and put your faith in Jesus Christ and choose the far greater treasure. And yet I believe there's another group of us here today that have done that. Maybe at Andrew's age, maybe at 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe like Ryan a few years ago, five years ago, maybe somewhere in between there. And and yeah, you made that decision and you left part of it, like you had a big backpack on and you unloaded part of it, but you're struggling because you've still got some of that old life holding you back and God's calling you today like Moses say, you've got to leave it all behind. You've got to let go of that. There are things that you're still watching, seeing, doing, relationships that are holding you back, choices that you're making. God is calling you to do something or you're indulging in some level of sin and you know it, maybe nobody else knows it, And God is saying, it's time to cut that loose, to leave that old life behind, and with endurance, follow the invisible God. Follow me. I'm worth it. Trust me. I was thinking of this analogy the other day, or a couple weeks ago. We were at my my wife's family for the 4th of July, and her grandparents had a farm out in the middle of nowhere in central Michigan, and as mentioned before, I like to take walks. And so July 4th, I wanted to go out for a walk. It was only like 160 degrees that day, and heavy humidity, and uh, I want to go for a walk, and they have a spot. It's about a three and a half mile walk, one way to uh, like a country road, and then you get to like an intersection with a blinking light. And I thought that'd be fun. So uh, I, I went out, I was in flip-flops, that has nothing to do with the story, but just to create an image there. I like to walk in flip-flops. So I'm walking that, that path, and I know in this 160-degree weather, that somewhere three and a half miles down, there's this blinking red light. I'm going to get there. I believe it because I remember driving through it. I know it's there. But as I start, and I'm walking, and it's hot, and it's humid, I can't see that light. But I believe it's there. Even though it's invisible, I believe it's there. And visibly, I'm showing I believe it because I'm moving towards that. And as I was walking, I was thinking about this, knowing I was preaching on Moses, and thought, that is so often how our life is. We are plodding along with endurance, knowing that there's an invisible God who is orchestrating all details of life and is sovereign over all things, but I can't see him. And there were times in that walk, I just was like, yeah, this feels far enough, right? I've lost enough sweat today. I'm not sure I'm going to make it home, actually. Uh, Hopefully someone will come look for me if I don't, right? But endurance. And the word I think about is this word grit. You know that word grit? 
I love that word. I'm not talking about John Wayne true grit. I'm talking about Jesus grit, like this, this perseverance that says, I'm going to stick through this, and I'm going to hold to Jesus even though I can't see him. And I want us to have grit here today, like Moses, like these first century Christians. I don't know what your circumstances are. I know what mine are, and I know I need more grit. I vacillate. I mentioned before, even in my own journey, I've had moments of peace and panic in this process, sometimes at the same time. It's possible, did you know that? To have peace and panic at the same time. Peace and a sovereign God, intellectually believing that God is good, he is sovereign, and he will take care of me. His promises are true. He's a refuge, like the Psalms say. And on the other side, panic as a human being going, what have I done? How is this going to work out? God, please show me, because right now I'm freaking out, and this doesn't make sense. And I could tell you lots of times where I have vacillated through that process and continue to hold to God, believing in that invisible God who's faithful and trustworthy and has given his heart for us to know and understand today. But it is hard, and it requires endurance, and it requires a courageous faith no matter what your circumstances are because some of you, God is calling you to do something that's pretty radical. I don't know what it is. And I won't even try to suggest him because that God's speaking to you and he's doing something that may be in a relationship, in a, you know, a decision, a job, something related that you need to do and he's calling you to step out in faith. And so I go back to Moses. Remember those contradictory statements that Moses was not afraid, right? The author of Hebrews says, and then Moses himself says he was afraid. So like, what is it? Did, did God mess up? Like, did the author of Hebrews miss something? Because I, I feel like Moses would have told the truth, right? He's a humble guy. Scripture tells us that. He says he's afraid. He left because of fear. So why does the author of Hebrews then say he was not afraid of the king? All right, two seemingly contradictory statements in this process. How do we reconcile those? Was he he leaving because of faith? Was he leaving because of fear? And my answer to that is yes. Yes. Yes, he was afraid from a human perspective for his life, and he knew if he stayed around, he was going to get killed. I look back to the faith of his parents. Remember, the, remember what the author of Hebrews says? He says, by faith, they weren't afraid of the king's, king's edict. Anybody a parent here that would just found out, right, your two-year-old is going to be killed, less than two-year-old? And he thought, okay, God, you got this covered. Yeah, I'm good. Like, I'll just step back, laissez-faire, and just see what you're going to do about it. No, there would be fear in our hearts, humanly speaking, but that doesn't mean we don't have faith in God that he's bigger than that. And I think that's what we see here is I believe that God had been working on the heart of Moses, calling him to this place 40 years, putting in him that God had something for him, not telling him like Abraham, not telling them where he was going to go, what it was going to look like. And now it had come and God says, okay, it's time. And he left, yes, partly there's a sense of survival, but also I think primarily because he had faith in God and that faith had been growing and growing and growing. And, And partly I believe that because I've experienced some of that in my own life. When I stepped out in that faith, and I know others of you have as well, there was plenty of fear, but the overriding desire was faith in God. And others of you have experienced that as well. Because the author of Hebrews, he's he's kind of cherry-picking in Hebrews 11. Do you know that? Like, is he telling us everything there is to know about these different characters? No. He's telling us primarily the really good parts, right? Like, if I was going to be in Scripture, Hebrews 11 is where I want to be, Right? Hebrews 11 is where you just get like, he did this awesome and this awesome and this awesome. And then we go back to the accounts in the Pentateuch and we're like, oh, he was kind of, he was kind of evil at times. Like he was in, you know, he fluffed around and he did this and he made bad, bad decisions and he, he didn't believe in God and he chose this and he was an adulterer and a murderer and he didn't trust God. And we realize that God loves to use sinners like you and me. 
And his purposes in Hebrews chapter 11, the author, is to kind of cherry pick out the best parts and say, yes, ultimately it was faith, not fear that was driving. Does that make sense? See how those can coexist at some level together? But that faith, you see, faith is not like, like stepping out total courage and having no fear. Faith is stepping out even in the midst of fear with courage, believing God is sufficient. That he's all satisfying that he can handle it, that he will take care of it even in the midst of my temporary and momentary or maybe longer fears, tribulations, and sufferings. My God will be with me. That invisible God will see me through and he will give the endurance that's needed. And some of us need to hear that today, myself included. We need grit. We need endurance. We need to be reminded just like those first century Christians who were, who were thinking about throwing in the towel, some of them, saying, you know what, it's not worth it. It was easier if we could go back before all this Jesus stuff happened, you know, at least the Romans left us alone. You know who that sounds like? Sounds like the, like the, the Israelites after they left. Boy, if we could just go back, like we at least had like leeks and melons and fresh food and yeah, we were under slavery and never got a moment to ourselves, but you know, at least we had, we had that good food, right? And I have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to do that. We look back and think, oh, if I could just go back. It would be better if I could go back. And God is saying, keep your eyes focused with endurance, with grit on me. Even though I'm invisible to you now, believe that who I am is who I am and it's worth following today. I encourage you, no matter what, if you've not left the life behind at all, or if you're holding on kind of partway, still strapped to that old life, let today be the beginning where you share that with someone and you get honest and you say, I've got to cut bait today and start moving forward and leave that life behind. And the only way that we can do that is the fourth thing that we see today from Moses is that we have to keep confidence in God's promises. Verse 28 gives us an indication of this The author of Hebrews says, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I'm not going to go into and describe all of what happened with the Passover. Many of you are probably familiar with that. Exodus chapters, boy, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, they give plenty of detail leading up through the plagues into why God did this. But what I want us to hear today why it was a faith decision for for Moses is because God was asking him to do a really unusual and let me argue absurd and ridiculous thing. We had seen multiple plagues leading up to this point that Pharaoh had continually refused even though God was hardening his heart. So God comes to Moses at the end of this time and he's kind of at the point where it's culminating in this and now it's time to bring the big one. He says, here's the deal, Moses. I'm going to give you a bunch of really specific instructions about food prep, what kind of animals, and what you're to do with their blood. And here's what's going to happen. Everybody who follows my instructions to the T will be spared, their household and their firstborn animals and children. Anybody who doesn't and those who are in Egypt are going to die. Like, what? If I'm Moses thinking, you've got to be kidding me. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness thinking, what am I doing here? You bring me back through this process and this is it? Like, you're asking me to do what? First, I've got to convince a group of people who's not even sure they want to follow me right now that that they need to do this, and then I've got to believe that you're going to do it. And that us spreading this blood as a covering over these doorposts is going to allow the destroyer to pass by us and for us to be protected. And remarkably, Moses has confidence in God's promise, both in that promise and he's looking back. You know, he's looking back. He's looking back to the Abrahamic covenant, right? He's looking back and knowing that God had made a covenant with Abraham, which we looked at a few weeks ago, that he would make a nation out of him. And I believe that Moses believed that God was good for his word. 
So I think in that moment, even though it would have been hard for him to understand why you're, you're going to do what and how, I believe that Moses knew that God was not going to destroy his people, that he was going to deliver them. And I think in that moment, Moses realizes that God is going to use him as the deliverer. Can you imagine that? This is the culmination of 80 years for Moses. 40 years of living in Egypt with everything he could have wanted, and then 40 years on his own with moments of peace and panic and who knows what was going through his mind of thinking, maybe God has forgotten about me and I'm on my own and I'm just going to live out my life as a, as a goat farmer, a sheep farmer. It comes to this place where God tells him, here's what I have for you, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to describe to these people now, now go and do it. And you have a very short period of time. And I believe that Moses did that by faith because he trusted God. He had confidence in God's promises. He believed that God was the greatest protector and that God would keep his word and his covenant with his people, that he was good for it. And I believe the same is true for us today. And God does that. In that moment, that night, the destroyer comes through and everyone who did not have the mark of the blood died and perished. And all those who followed to a T the instruction that God had laid out through Moses, did it. You know, we have a hard enough time getting people to switch services, right, and change times. Imagine Moses having to be the one to try to get people to follow along. Hey, by the way, got a word from the Lord, and it's this. You imagine that as he's sharing that with the elders and the people and the looks he must have gotten, right? Because they saw all the plagues, and they saw each one of them, you know, didn't work. Now, this was the first one that was going to involve them. And so it's, it is Moses' faith primarily, but also at some level, the faith of those people to go, wow, to follow him, even though they had to be thinking, this is nuts. This is crazy. Are we willing to follow God even when it just feels ridiculous, absurd, makes no sense, can't understand it, can't reconcile it? I know I wrestle with that, but I want to be someone who's looking to an invisible God, following him each step of the way. And friends, the bottom line is that blood is still our saving grace today. It's not the blood of an animal anymore. We sang a song, the, the, the Lamb of God who shed his blood. That same blood is available for each one of us here today. And it's, you know, in, in our world's view, it's kind of weird to talk about blood like this. Like, oh, it's gross. Blood is the most precious thing in this world. The blood of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. We don't have to put it on a doorpost. We don't have to kill an animal. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to be the ultimate lamb, the far better sacrifice so that we could have forgiveness of sin, so we no longer have to be bound in slavery to sin, that we no longer have to live with, with you know, a lack of understanding or hope for where God is taking us, but we can have peace knowing that our God is faithful. The blood still is what saves us today. So how visible is your faith in an invisible God? How visible is it? As you evaluate this morning, have you been willing to refuse the world's approval? Have you been willing to choose the greater treasure, to leave the, behind the old life, and to keep confidence in God's promises? This is not, I've mentioned, this, this faith journey is not a perfect line, right? I don't, this is not what mine looks like. I've said this before. This is what mine looks like. Man, ups and downs and struggles and difficulties, moments where I feel so close to Jesus and moments when I feel so far away and I'm despairing and I'm frustrated and I'm discouraged and I'm crying out because I have nowhere else to cry. And I believe that that invisible God still hears me in those moments and still loves me in the midst of my unbelief and my struggle. And the same is true for each of you here today. It is worth finishing that race or for some starting 
that race? How visible is your faith? I want to close with an illustration. Last couple of times I've closed with a family member. I'm going to do that again, but it's not one of my children. I'm going to share about my wife's grandparents in hopes to illustrate kind of what I'm talking about today and as we wrap up, to cook, put some flesh on the bone. So we'll throw the picture up. This is my wife's grandparents, Stan and Helen Kresge. One year ago, July 3rd, Stan passed away. After living a life of following Jesus and just a commitment to God, God took him home. And uh, as I was thinking about this passage today, uh, Helen is still uh, at the farm. We just saw her a couple weeks ago. I was thinking about Moses today. I kept thinking about Stan. Uh, Stan is the grandson of a man named S.S. Kresge. Some of you may be familiar with S.S. Kresge. Uh, Lived in Michigan, started Kresge Five and Dime. Uh, They eventually started something called Kresge Mart, which became Kmart, Sears and Roebuck. He was kind of a big deal. Back in 1924, S.S. Kresge, Stan's grandfather, was worth $324 million. Today, that would be about $5 billion. He had $100 million in real estate. He was a big deal, had a lot of money, and would have been able to pass a fair amount of that prestige and money onto his grandson, Stan. But Stan didn't want anything to do with it. God had put in his heart something different. He saw how money and alcohol had corrupted some of his family members and how it caused them to be away from their home and how they weren't raising their children to know and love Jesus and the desire that God had laid on his heart. So he went to school to be a farmer, bought an 80-acre farm in the middle of central Michigan, north of Lansing, raised eight kids on a farm, hand-weeded those 80 acres of, 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 of corn and for his cows. I mean, it's crazy. Never used pesticide, just committed to being able to be that kind of a farmer and was a very unassuming man for those 80-some years that God gave him on life until he died. He was willing to refuse the approval of his, of his dad and his grandpa and the world who had thought, you're crazy. He knew that there was a better treasure for him and he was willing to leave behind that old life because he had confidence in God, an invisible God. Well, shortly before he died in the last year, he was having some real problems with his heart and they were recommending that he have uh, you know, congenitive heart failure. So he was recommending a procedure that was going to be about seventy dollars to $80,000. We self-insured. That's a lot of money. And he decided that he didn't want to do that. And even the family was trying to, right, we got a big family. My wife is actually the oldest of 44 grandchildren on that side. And our oldest daughter is the oldest of 40 great-grandchildren and counting, which promises to be in the thousands by the time they're all done. So he had a big family, and he was an unassuming man that, that you know, just kind of kept to himself, but you knew he had faith. And he decided he didn't want to do that surgery because he had a heart for the nations his whole life, and he thought that money can be used to reach people with the gospel. I'm not saying you have to make that decision. That's just what God had laid on his heart. And he chose not to do that. And shortly after that, God took him home. After he died, it came to find out that he had given hundreds of thousands of dollars away for missions. Unassuming, never had much, didn't leave much behind because his eyes were fixed on an invisible God. He was far from perfect, right? He had his flaws. He had his issues just like we all do. But for 85 plus years, daily, his visible faith was strong. He had visible faith and invisible God. God, I pray that, that would be true for my life and the lives of those that are here today. I thank you for stories like Moses. I thank you for including them in scriptures so that we can be reminded that what we do matters and that we can look back and be encouraged by those who have gone before us. But God, if we walk out and it's just a nice story, then we've missed it. We need to walk out with endurance, with grit, with the desire to leave behind some of the sinful things that we might be doing in our lives and to keep our eyes focused on you. Would we have 
the faith of Moses? Would we have the faith of Stan Kresge? Would we have the faith of so many here today that are surrounding us like a cloud of great witnesses, those first century Christians, these heroes of the faith, and even those today? God, give us that kind of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.